Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We'll read about the one who sinned by keeping back, the same word that is used of Achan, in Joshua 7 used of Ananias, here in Acts 5 verse 2, he kept back what he should have given. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would teach us to tell the truth and to fear you. To tell the truth to you and to the rest of the church. Teach us to beware of the presence and activity of Satan and that his activity often takes the form of making us want to look good in the church for, we think, the sake of the church. Lord, turn us away from such deception. Help us to learn from this, to fall at the feet of Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen me to speak your word and strengthen all of us to hear it and to act upon it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the commentators had the best opening line on this section. He writes this, Now arises the church's first major internal challenge since the apostasy of Judas Iscariot, which was, what, eight weeks ago? This is a pretty major internal challenge. It's the first one since Judas Right, the first one this month. The early church was not a problem-free zone. The early church had major problems, as we see in Acts and as we see in 1 Corinthians. One of these problems is exemplified in Ananias and Sapphira. The problem of wanting to look better than you are. It led this couple to lie to God about the scope of their generosity. And God struck them dead for that lie and thereby taught the church to fear Him. 
Over and over, people lay things at the apostles' feet or fall at the apostles' feet in this sequence. What's the lesson? God will never be bought off by your money. He demands your whole self. Ananias and Sapphira thought they could give money. God took their life instead. Hence the sermon title, Your Money or Your Life. The fact of the matter is God demands both. And if you try to give God money so that you don't have to give him your life, which is what Ananias and Sapphira were doing and lying about it, God will take your life. So we'll look at the story relatively quickly and then we'll spend most of our time looking at the lessons that Luke has for us from this story. In terms of where this fits in the narrative, it's pretty clear Satan attacks the church first by external threats. Peter and John are threatened, then arrested, and then uh, tried before the Sanhedrin. We've looked at all of that. And then, when that fails, Satan tries an internal attack. As Ananias and Sapphira lie and attempt to test the Spirit of the Lord. When that fails, in uh, the next chapter, chapter 6... Satan tries a third tactic, distraction. External threats didn't work, internal lies and conflict didn't work, so let's distract the leaders and get them involved in doing charitable work, charity work around town. Feeding widows. So we'll look at that in a few weeks. But God, through Peter, meets and vanquishes all three of these attacks that Satan levels. The external attack, the internal attack, and the distraction attack. But this is the internal attack. Ananias sells a field, brings his money, lays it at the apostles' feet, and doesn't say, per se, that he openly said, just so you all know, this is the total sale price. He may have just been letting people assume that. But the fact is, he wanted them to think it. He was openly deceiving them as he brought this money. And, by the way, one, this is one reason that I think the church has evolved towards a model of anonymous giving. There's a lot to be said for that, rather than, hey, he's the biggest giver in the church, let's call him up here. Joe Blow, everybody give Joe Blow a hand. Look at how much he gave to the church. And you hold up the big fat check. That has obvious downsides. And of course, that's what's going on here in Acts 4 and 5. They're new believers. They're so excited to give that they don't even think, hmm, maybe we shouldn't be, you know, building giant church buildings and writing on there the Eastman Wing or pew given in honor of so-and-so. My grandparents belonged to a church in the South, and a certain family gave a $250,000 piano to this church. The church fell on hard times, fired the pastor, people started to leave. That family materialized out of the woodwork and attempted to get their piano back before the church disintegrated, and the assets had to be given to some charitable organization some way. Right, that, nothing wrong with giving a $250,000 piano to your church. But, what's wrong, and what Ananias does wrong, is seeking the glory 
the name, the reputation. I'm a benefactor of the church. Yes, you can all look at me. I liquidated my stuff and I handed it over and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they wanted the glory. They lied to get the glory. They pretended to recognize the apostles' authority, right? Bow down at their feet and place the money there. They didn't recognize the apostles' authority at all. They pretended generosity when they were moved not by generosity, but by a desire to look good. That's pretty scary. How often do we give because we want to give? How often do we give because we want the person we're giving to to say, what a guy. Look at how much he gave. Well, that's what Ananias does. Peter confronts him. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter challenges him with the truth that giving in the church is always and only voluntary. The land was yours. When you sold it, the money was yours. You could have given any of it, all of it, none of it. Doesn't matter to me. The church doesn't own your stuff. But the church does demand that you tell the truth. Because God says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Peter confronts Ananias with this. Tells him essentially, give according to your conscience, not according to any other standard. That's why our church doesn't do pledge cards. Doesn't harp on tithing. Doesn't send around auditors. Some cults do this, right, to check on the adjusted gross income of their members and then ask them or tell them, you did not tithe. You owe the church, blah, blah, blah. The church has no business doing that, hounding people to give this, that, or the other. Rather, Peter says, it's yours. If you want to give it, give it. If you don't want to give it, don't give it. But don't lie to God. And God strikes Ananias dead at that point. Three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter replays the scene with her. Peter gives her the chance to to confirm the lie, which she does. He names the headline amount on the transaction. She affirms that. Peter blasts her verbally. How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Those who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out. She falls down dead. They take her out and bury her beside her husband. Some of the commentators get into, well, why did they have the funeral so soon, and wouldn't they have wanted to notify the kin and wait a few days? And That's not the point of the story. What is the point of the story? The point of the story is that when God is starting something new, there's always somebody who doesn't recognize his holiness. In other words, this story is a replay of a story we've heard before. It starts with Achan in Joshua 7. Sees the stuff in Jericho, says, I'm not going to war on my own dime. Are you crazy? I am taking this loot. Takes it, 36 men dead as a result. And he gets stoned and burned with his family and all his stuff 
to say, no, Achan, that belonged to God. You may not touch that. That's at the beginning of inhabiting the land. When Israel comes into the land, Achan dies in order to learn to keep his fingers off God's stuff. A little bit before that, the beginning of the Levitical system, Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire to God. They die. God smites them dead to teach them not to offer unauthorized fire. There's one correct way of worshiping me. I just told you what it is. You step aside. You violate that way. You're gone. So at the beginning of the Levitical system, God kills Nadab and Abihu. Beginning of the occupation of the land, God kills Achan and his family. And then at the beginning of the monarchy and legitimate temple worship, Uzzah puts the Ark of God on a cart with David's approval. The cart goes over a poorly maintained road, bounces, the Ark starts to fall off, and Uzzah grabs it, right? Uzzah thought he was holier than dirt, quite literally. And God strikes him dead to say, again, keep your fingers off my stuff. So we have three in a row at the beginning of the Levitical system, at the beginning of living in the land, at the beginning of the monarchy, God strikes somebody dead to say, I am holier than you can imagine. Don't mess with what I told you not to mess with. So here, when God changes the epoch, moves forward into the church era, just a few weeks after Pentecost, Ananias and Sapphira come and lie. And essentially, what they're doing is conceived of as lying to God and or stealing from God. Taking property that they said were giving everything to God, so... God takes that, accepts that. Yes, it's all mine. But then they keep some of it back. So again, they're putting their grubby fingers on what belongs to God. They didn't have to give it to God, but when they said they did, God said, all right, it's mine. Now you're keeping it back from me. Boom, you're dead. In other words, this is not a one-off. This is not some kind of Weird thing where God suddenly breaks out. This is the fourth incident of its kind in the Bible. And every time the message from God is the same. My holiness will kill you if you transgress my boundaries. I exist to glorify myself if you come onto my holy property and take some of it for yourself, right? whether that's Nadab and Abihu claiming for themselves the right to decide how to worship God, or whether that's Uzzah and Achan claiming for themselves the right to touch God's holy materials, or whether that's Ananias and Sapphira claiming for themselves the right to touch it. right? Once you put it in the offering plate, It's God's. And when you jump in to claw it back, God says, 
that's holy, that's mine, get your hands off it. And in other words, what? The New Testament God is no less holy, no less jealous than the Old Testament God. They're the same God. He hasn't changed. Ananias stand in a long line of people who transgressed the boundaries of the sacred and paid the ultimate price at the beginning of a new era of God's dealings with his people. Right, so in this era of God's dealings with his people through the church, what does he say? Don't lie to me. Don't say that you've given it to me and then keep it for you. Right, now thank God none of us would ever do that. And I would never say, Lord, my time is yours. My money is yours. My house is yours. My family is yours. And then throw a fit when he demands it. Claw some of that time back. This is me time. This is my family, God. You can't take my child. This is my money, God. You can't take my bank account. This is my spouse, God. You can't take my marriage. Right. This is my church, God. You can't take it from me. Ananias and Sapphira said, this is my money. Well, first they said, this is your money, God. And then they turned around and said, actually, some of it is still my money. And God knew that. And he struck them dead and the entire church feared. So what are the lessons? What do we take away from this passage? Well, the first thing I want to emphasize, Peter mentions the adversary here in verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? It was only about, again, eight or so weeks before this that Satan filled the heart of Judas Iscariot. Now, just a few weeks after Satan enters into Judas, he enters into Ananias. What does it mean for Satan to fill the heart? It means that he controls something about you. He puts you under his direction. His agenda is to oppose God in any way possible. That's his name, adversary, destroyer. God is the creator, Satan is the destroyer. Satan comes in, puts you under his control in a certain sense, to a certain degree, and then uses you as part of his campaign against God. How does Satan enter into somebody? The text doesn't address that question. The rest of the Bible tells us that you have to open yourself. You give the devil a foothold, for instance, Paul says, by holding on to bitterness. I can't forgive so-and-so. If you let the sun go down on your anger, you give the devil a foothold. Ananias apparently gave the devil a foothold through his greed. But in any case, Satan entered his heart and taught him to lie. Now that's scary, right? We have this adjective, diabolical, 
And we use it to describe actions of supreme evil. Something incredibly dark and twisted. And so we would have no, no problem saying the voodoo religion is satanic. The Pornhub site is satanic. Sacrificing chickens on the light of a full moon, that's satanic. That's what we think of. Something incredibly dark, twisted, evil, confined to nightclubs and satanic temples and or other temples of false religions. But what does Luke tell us that is satanic? What's satanic, he says, is trying to look good in church as a church member for the benefit of the church. Ananias' diabolical action is to come and lay money at the apostles' feet. Yikes. In other words, don't say, well, it's not Satan-inspired unless it's horrific and deep and dark and heinous. This sin of just keeping back a certain amount of money after you said you would give it to God... Peter calls diabolical. What's satanic is really basic, really pedestrian. We may be talking a few thousand shekels here. A few thousand denarii. And yet, God says, this is satanic. This desire to look better than you are to appear as a chaste family man, as a solid financial manager, somebody who's generous to the church, or hospitable in the church, or gives gifts in the church. This desire to make yourself look more honorable and trustworthy than you really are, Luke and Peter label diabolical and satanic. The mark of a satanic heart is that it wants to look good in church. Now, you can also want to look good in church for the right reasons, no doubt. But don't think of Satanism as just horrible things practiced by Haitians. Satanism is alive and well in respectable churches. So Peter says, lying in church is satanic. Satan tries to destroy the church, and he tries to destroy the church by getting us to lie about our generosity. Second lesson is don't test God. Peter says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? What is a test? Well, a test is the deliberate introduction of some kind of stressful situation such that you can assess the response to that situation. Thus, I put a paper in front of you and asked you to write down 18 different things you learned in math class over the last 16 weeks. That's a test. Or, I string up a cable between two pylons 
and I hang weights on it until the cable breaks. That's a test. I want to see how much the cable can hold. Or some other kind of stressful situation that you deliberately introduce, again, in order to assess the performance of the one being tested. So to test the Lord means to deliberately attempt to introduce a situation in which God can be evaluated. I will put God right here in this desk and I'll administer the SAT to him and see how he does. One of the most obvious examples of this is that uh, atheist, what was his name, Ingersoll or something, toured the country, would carry his pocket watch. He would go up to the podium and address the meeting, pull his pocket watch out of his vest and be like, well, look at this. I'm going to set my timer for five minutes. God, if you're there, strike me dead in five minutes. Then he puts it in his pocket and goes on with his rant about how there's no God and then the timer rings in five minutes and he says, see, I'm still alive. There is no God. He's attempting to test the Lord. To artificially induce this situation where God's options are constrained, God's power is limited, where God has to go down the path that you've laid out for him. God won't play along with that. right? He never struck that man dead, at least not till the end of his life. Because God refuses to be tested. So if you set yourself up as the evaluator of the Almighty's behavior, you're testing the Lord. I see two kinds of testing the Lord in this passage. The first is testing the church for the presence of the Spirit. Is the Spirit in this church? Well, let me do something that He would have to condemn if He were here. And we'll see if he does anything about it. Let me see if I can get away with lying in this church. Peter calls that testing the Holy Spirit. You do something that the Spirit would have to judge you for, and if you think you've gotten away with it, right, then you conclude, aha, Spirit isn't here. God is not powerful in this church. God doesn't care what I do. I can get away with my sin. Right? We've all tested situations for God's presence in this way. If you can remember the first time you committed a particular sin, and then hopefully, right, you got caught and the hammer dropped on you, and you realized, oh, God passed that test. I'm not going to do that again. Sometimes you commit a particular sin and you don't get caught. And you get away with it. And you get emboldened to try it again. And you conclude, God is not going to punish me for this. I can get away with this sin. And you continue to double down on that sin until it becomes a sinful habit. Well, God dropped the hammer on Ananias He tested the Spirit. He tested the church for the presence of God. And God struck him dead. There are other people who test the church for the presence of God and then think they're getting away with their sin. 
right? We've all heard the stories of pastors who are doing evil things, stealing from the church, having an affair, and so on and so on and so on. They're testing the church for the presence of God, and sometimes they get away with their sin for quite a few years. Ordinary church members do it too. Peter says, don't do that. If you test the church, if you try to test God, sometimes he will judge you immediately, other times he will judge you later, but he will always react negatively to you attempting to test him. The other aspect of testing the church or testing God is just seeing if he's serious. That's what all four of these people who got struck dead had in common. God isn't serious about only using the sanctuary fire to offer incense. So they offer a different fire and God strikes them dead. Oh, I guess he was serious. Achan, God isn't serious about not taking anything from Jericho. I'll take just 0.00001% of what's available in Jericho. God will never miss it. It's a rounding error. God missed it, right? He was serious when he said, don't take anything from this city. Uzzah. God isn't serious when he says, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant and don't put it on a wheeled vehicle. I'll just touch it here while it's on a wheeled vehicle. Boom. Oh, God was serious. And so Ananias and Sapphira now say, aha, it's a new era, love, peace, grace. God is merciful now, more merciful than he was in the old covenant era that we grew up in. He's not serious about the need to tell the truth. We'll just tell a little lie. God strikes him dead. They find out that he was serious. So often we test God by assuming this same attitude. God, are you serious? Did you really mean honor your father and mother? Did you really mean don't commit adultery? Did you really mean don't covet? Surely it's okay to subscribe to all the catalogs for my favorite clothing stores and my favorite food stores. Surely it's okay to have an Amazon wish list 35 items long. Surely it's okay. That's not coveting. If you're asking the question, is God serious about this command, then you're doing what Ananias and Sapphira did. So what's the ultimate lesson? Well, the ultimate lesson, the one that everyone who saw this drew, is fear. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. The lesson, the final lesson, stand against Satan, yes. Don't test the spirit, yes. The biggest lesson, fear God. If you fear God, then Satan can't enter your heart. If you fear God then you will realize that it's not your place to administer tests to him and see whether he really meant what he said or to see whether he's really present where he said he would be present. The fear of God protects you 
from Satan's strategies. The fear of God protects you from testing God. And how does the fear of God manifest itself? Well, Luke emphasizes, number one, tell the truth. The fear of God manifests itself by you admitting what's really happening. And conversely, lack of fear of God manifests itself in lying. Proverbs, as we saw, talks over and over and over about the connection between the fear of God and the tongue. If you fear God, your tongue will speak the truth. And if you don't fear God, your tongue will speak lies. So Ananias and Sapphira spoke a lie because they didn't fear God. A congregation of truth-tellers is a God-fearing congregation. And that means telling the truth even when the truth makes you look bad. Well, I liquidated my property for $500,000, and I'm going to give $150,000 of that to the church. And yes, I know the guy next to me liquidated his property for 175000 and he's giving 175000 to the church. I'm only giving a little less. Right, but at least that's telling the truth in a certain sense. So tell the truth and don't try to keep something back for yourself. We already talked about this. This idea of saying, oh yes, I give that to God. And then attempting to claw it back when it becomes inconvenient to let God have it. I give God my country's politics. Except that I reserve the right to worry myself sick over the antics of the clowns in Washington, D.C. whenever I feel like it. I give God my health. Except I reserve the right to be angry if I get cancer, diabetes, a traumatic brain injury, a car wreck that results in amputation, that right, or I have this deep-seated fear of being poor because I went through XYZ experience and I reserve the right to be furious with God if He takes away my financial standing. One way or another, you will fall at Jesus' feet. That's the message of this story. You can fall down alive or you can fall down dead. If you say, God, I give myself to you, I fear you, I'm yours, then you have to carry that through. Why is it worth carrying it through? Well, that's Luke's major point, because Jesus really reigns. He's really in charge. We've seen that especially recently as the apostles confront the temple and its leadership and as they assume the leadership over the new, renewed Israel. But it's worth fearing God. It's worth giving yourself to God because Jesus really does reign. And therefore, He's worth serving You will submit to the authority of the apostles, either voluntarily like Barnabas giving your all, or involuntarily like Ananias and Sapphira who tried to hold something back and ended up forfeiting their lives or giving their lives to God. 
They thought that if they gave him their money, he would leave their lives alone. It's not true. Yes, give God your money. But give it to him because it represents your life. Give him your life by resisting Satan, telling the truth, and fearing God. Don't test him. Commit yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, don't let us think of you as a robber who wants our money or our life. Help us to understand that you are a creator and a sustainer who wants our money and our life. Lord, we give everything we have to you. Take it. And the reason we give everything we have to you is because you've given everything you have to us, including your son and with him all things. Don't let us be like Ananias and Sapphira. Teach us to fear you and tell the truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.